Star jump sequence terminates, Captain. Get the gravitational dampers online and open the blast aye, shield. Aye, sir. Bring us in closer. Aye, aye, sir. Moving us in on sublight drive. Extreme magnification. Aye, sir. The center of the galaxy. And there's our black hole. The experience of a lifetime, Captain. Let me put this on audio. We should be able to hear the magnetic resonance field. This is it, ladies and gentlemen. The edge of time and space where the impossible can happen. Welcome to the event horizon. Good morning, or afternoon, or evening, whatever is relevant for the part of the world you are in. Indeed, welcome to the Event Horizon, where the impossible happens. Join us we- each week at... I'm... fluffed my own lines. <laughs> Join us each week at this time as we delve into the worlds of science fiction, fantasy, and science fact in all their forms. I'm your host, Gene Turnbow. And I'm your other host, Susan Fox. And with us is Madeline Holly Rosing, the writer and creator of Boston Metaphysical Society. Welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Yeah, it's awesome. I, we've, we have been, uh, we have been following the comic. Uh, I think the last time you spoke to us, you'd gotten like one and a half issues done. And now you're up to six and going for a trade. Yes, that's right. We're, uh, we're running the, the Kickstarter for the trade right now. And, um, yeah, it's, it's been quite a journey the last few years. That's for sure. Yeah, it's wow. I mean, it's, there's so much going on. It's so much to this. And your, uh, Boston Metaphysical Society is a, it started out as a web series, a web comic. Correct. Uh, yeah, in, Correct. Following the lead of other very successful web comics, uh, most notably uh, Girl Genius. Uh, oh who yeah, is, they're they're awesome. They are they they just have a monstrous following, just enormous. And uh, and you do too now. Apparently, your Kickstarter is doing extremely well. Um, I think when we published our last article about it, uh, a couple of days ago, um, when you sent me the press release, you were at 150% and then I sat on it for like two days and I came back and you were at 180%. (laughs) And, uh, I mean, wow. Yeah, we're at, uh, 191% now. Uh, so yeah, we're just hovering. We're a hundred dollars from our, fourth stretch goal and uh obviously close to 200% funded and we have uh well as of tomorrow it'll be 13 days to go so uh people are getting lots of goodies which is which is always a lot of fun um when i can add on the goodies for the backers uh cuz you know they deserve it oh yeah you know, <laughs> you know i mean you it's, know that you um, absolutely oh, do just, just in case uh your new listeners, uh, should I give you a little synopsis of the story in case people yes. have not heard of it before? Yeah, that's a good idea because uh, you know if you if you didn't catch the previous show, you'd be kind of lost. Tell us about the webcomic and how it got started. 
Uh, well, the story is about an ex-Pinkerton detective, a spirit photographer, and a genius scientist who battles supernatural forces in late 1800s Boston. So think of it as Steampunk X-Files. Uh, we started as a webcomic in 2012, mm-hmm. and that was essentially to uh, establish a foothold um, and, and to build a fan base. And... Uh, I mean, we only, we always intended to go to print, um, and we did. We, we went to print about a year later with a special edition of the first chapter, and, and then started, that was like a 42 pager special mm-hmm. edition, which, which doesn't exist anymore. They were, that was a limited run. And, so it's then, a collector's item now. Yeah, that's it. Yeah. And then we went, um, to a smaller version. And uh, it was like a 24-pager, and then just started doing each issue, you know, separately. And it had always been planned to be a six-issue miniseries. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's essentially a graphic novel, but it was broken down into six chapters for budgetary reasons. And many people do that because, you know, you just that's just the way you have to do it. You have to break it down into smaller parts in order to accomplish the larger goal. Uh, which is which is what we did, and I've I've done a lot of cons. Um, I think I worked fifteen cons at least last year. That is a lot. And but that's that's really uh, where I build a fan base is at the comic cons. The uh, the at this point having it online is just sort of the icing on the cake. Mm-hmm. But it established uh, me as a brand. So and so it, it served its purpose. And it continues to draw in new readers. I mean, it's uh, the the advantage of having it online is still that it can be found uh, by serendipity. And there aren't yes. it's a it is a very strongly steampunk thing. And, uh, you know, steampunk and Ghostbusters sort of together. For some reason, that seems to be a very popular mix and uh um, like ghosts are an old fashioned belief, you see. Yeah, that's true. <clears throat> yeah, that's I true. mean that that's one of the reasons it was uh uh that Caitlin Caitlin O'Sullivan is a spirit photographer. Uh it was actually suggested by a friend when I was first developing this story cuz y- you probably remember this but your n- any new listeners wouldn't. I originally developed this as a TV pilot while I was at school, UCLA mm-hmm. Film School, because um, as you already know, I have an MFA in, in screenwriting. And as I was developing the story concept, uh, one of my classmates suggested that she be a spirit photographer because that just blended in so perfectly with the time period and people really believed in such things. And I thought, you know, that's, she's right. It's a perfect idea. So I... Expanded and developed uh, Caitlin as a spirit photographer, and of course her father, who she inherited her gifts from, and her family, and her you know whole condition in life. Um, but yeah, Kate, Caitlin O'Sullivan is, I think, probably the the fan favorite. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, <laughs> yeah. And I uh, like. I, interesting. I like how she, um, you know, you've you've preserved her Scottish identity. Or is it Scottish or Irish? Irish. Irish, Irish. Irish identity. Uh, and she's, you know, you can just hear that brogue in your head when she speaks. 
you know, she's she's a lot of fun as a character. Yeah, I also wanted to keep her as a, a young woman of her time. Uh, so even though yes, she does push the envelope of what is socially expected from her, she is still bound by certain conventions, hmm. uh, which she's you know at her peril to break. Well, it's it's you know it's still the nineteenth century. I mean, yes. I'm sorry. Uh, uh, review me on the date again. Is that uh, like 1880? Yes. The, yeah. Okay, the the yeah. comic starts uh, at in 1885. 1895. Excuse me. 1895. 1895. Okay. Yeah. Very much so. And uh, the the first adventures are are, I mean they they do honest to god ghost busting and it's it's yeah. serious stuff. It, it's it's um it's well, not just it's not just random spirits showing up. There's an agenda going on. Well, and it's kind of a family story, isn't it? Oh yeah, and it, oh, it's yeah. really really an, an engaging plotline. And and the the great thing about it is is that you've thrown in these these common touchstones with the history that we know, so that you can leap off into the history that we don't know. Uh, you must you must be talking about Bell, Edison, Tesla, and Houdini. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I am. Yes, I am. How perceptive of you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Houdini is pretty much my comic relief. Uh, but, yeah, and they all lived in the same time period, as did uh, Granville Woods, who's part of the Boston Metaphysical team. Um, they are all contemporaries of each other, and... In real life, uh, many of them actually knew each other and worked with each other. Uh, I think the only person they, I think Houdini in in the real world is the only one they they probably didn't ever meet. But you know, I could be wrong. Who but knows? they knew of him. They must have. Well, known everybody him. knew of him. Oh, they knew of him. Yes, most definitely. So tell us more about Granville, the real Granville. The real Granville. Um, He's actually probably my favorite character because, I guess, to me, he's often the smartest person in the room. <laughs> uh huh. That's a rough life. What? Yeah. And he has to be because he's got this disadvantage in that his he's browner than the other people around him. Yes. Yeah, yes. And, there, and uh, there's that built-in uh, uh, racist bias that that you know everybody had back then. And we yeah, still do now, apparently. Yes, unfortunately, um, that's true. Uh, yeah, apparently the real Granville uh, would often introduce himself as an aborigine from Australia because he found he got more respect by doing that rather than introducing himself as an African-American. Hmm. Strange, can, isn't if it? If you can imagine. And... Of course, I, I've obviously I've done research on him. So much of it conflicts. Um, so who knows what really happened? Some people say he was married. Some people say he wasn't. Uh, I don't think he ever was. Uh, he did eventually start a business with his brother in upstate New York uh, because he did invent things and he sold he sold the patents. That's how he made his living. He would invent them and he often sold many of his things to Alexander Bell. Oh, uh, so they obviously did know each other. Mm -hmm. um, 
Uh, one of the stories I read about him, and who knows if it's true, I, I kind of like it, though. He actually knows several stories. He, of course, couldn't go to college, but there he either had some friends or compatriots who stole books from the college library on engineering and brought them out for him to read. And that's one of the reasons he, he got as educated as he did, uh, because his, his engineering knowledge was at a, a clearly a college level. Mm-hmm. And uh, there's a fun story where he sued Edison for stealing some of his patents, and he won. Uh, which I find interesting. Yeah, that hardly ever happened. Well, yeah. The winning uh, but part But then Edison of offered him a job. I kind of figured that Edison, since he couldn't steal from him, figured he'd just buy the guy. <laughs> right. <laughs> by, by hiring him. But he refused, and like I mentioned before, he, he went off and started his own business with his brother. He's originally from Ohio and uh, specialized in rail, railroad switching technology. But, of course, since I'm the writer, I, I brought him to uh, to Boston because, well, I can do that. <laughs> uh-huh. It's your uh, ultimate but, universe. But, yeah, but what? But even a better story is I was in Artist Alley at San Diego Comic-Con last year. You know, our little four-foot tables stuffed, mm-hmm. stuffed away. And a young lady came up, and, of course, I started my pitch about the story and everything. And, and she looks at Granville, and she goes, oh, I know about him. Well, like, you do? Because that's unusual. Most people think he's a fictional character. They don't know he's, he's a real person. And she says, yes. She goes, I was in law school, and my professor specialized in historical cases. And she goes, I read the brief of where he sued Edison. Wow. It's in the National Archives. Wow. And I went like, oh, my God, this is so interesting. And she said that her instructor now that particular uh, lawsuit didn't set precedent for trademark and copyright law but it set the stage for precedent of trademark and copyright law that we know today Huh. so Granville was, was part of that journey and it was just so fascinating to find out that my guy <laughs> is actually important to independent creators world round <laughs> How about that? The other thing about your characters is that they're all, you know, they're all well-developed, uh, fleshed-out characters, and every every single one of them has their own unique, distinct voice. They're not just there as wallpaper, and they're not just there as, uh, uh, you know, icons on a on a uh, comic book page. Uh, well, they are. Thanks. They have active. They have active. Uh, active voices in the storyline. Each one of them. They all have an inner life. You know what I yeah, mean? Yeah, yeah. That's exactly. Yeah. yeah. That, very well said. Well, thank you. <laughs> I appreciate that. I'll take that as a compliment. It is. The. Um, I'm sorry. I'm going. I just went up. I haven't read the new ones either, so I have, I'm I'm really out of things to ask. Uh, yeah, well, Samuel, you by the time in the sixth issue, you figure you discover Samuel's secret, mm. and um, 
and the shifter presents itself in in all its glory. And this is hinted at in uh, in the first book. I remember that. I guess it had to sooner or yeah. later. Yes. Yep. But it's, yes. so you have you, this you, grand story arc that leads you through. Well, well, you actually see the shifter in the first issue. You just don't realize it. Mm-hmm. Oh, now that now I got to go back and read the whole thing over again. <laughs> and it's your fault. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's it's not that it's that much of a burden because once you start, you know, it's like popcorn. You cannot stop turning pages. The um, the glorious thing about it is that you've you've conceived of these things in in distinct pieces, and each one stands on its own, and yet it forms this this arc that covers the entire uh, the entire. There's a st- there's a uh, yeah, larger there's, story. There's a larger story. Yeah. Um, so so yeah, wh- when I, you- I credit that with the UCLA Film School mm. uh, because this was conceived as a, a, a miniseries, a six issue miniseries. So each individual episode or issue, he's like as one would say, um, would give you at least a, a case. So you would have some resolution and some feeling of satisfaction by the end of each chapter. Mm-hmm. But yet there was an overarching uh, storyline that what isn't resolved until chapter six. So, you know, it keeps you involved and you learn more about the ca- these characters as they uh, solve other cases and do other things. So you started out with six scripts. Um. <laughs> uh, yeah, well, I had the arc for all six, mm-hmm. and then as we got money to, um, and I had outlines for all of them, mm-hmm. uh, and then as as we moved along and got money for them, then I would write the entire script and and hand it off, of course, to my wonderful artist Emily Hugh, who I must give kudos to because she's amazing, and you can see how she's developed as an artist as well through all six issues, oh, and yes. my colorist, uh, Gloria and Fariza. Com- I mean, the whole team has been amazing. I just, uh, I couldn't be happier. Comparing the uh, com- comparing the artwork uh, from issue six to issue one, wow. I mean, she's she was great to start with, but now it's, it's oh, it's well, just that's, sumptuous. That's how you learn, you know, yeah, well, as, yeah. as an artist, uh-huh. any art, any art form. So did you find yourself going, once you had uh, all six of the uh, uh, segments written, did you find yourself going back and rewriting part three because of stuff that happened in part six that that you hadn't thought of? You better not no. have done that after it was published. <laughs> Too late. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, Too I mean... It, when was, it, it was locked. You know, that once once the art and it's in print, it's done. Well, it's yeah. Locked. But when you were yeah. developing the story arc in the first place, you know, did you? Uh, uh, You're assuming that she was she'd finished all the all six scripts and then started publishing them. No, I, I didn't. I didn't. I did like the first one, and then we published. So no, there was gaps between writing the scripts. Yeah. Oh, that's what I thought okay. it been. So, did you find yourself painted into a corner in certain places, or having to find clever ways out of it, or or were you laid um, out too well for that? Not, uh, I wasn't. I was never painted into a corner. There was a couple times where I realized because of the the gap between writing the scripts, I found 
what writers would call uh, repeat beats. And you don't want repeat beats because it's just boring. And, mm-hmm. and your characters remain static. So I, I would have to go like, oh, okay, let me go back and and the, the what I was working currently working on, make sure that I didn't duplicate certain beats from the previous issue or the issue before, or if it was too late to do anything about it, create some clever workaround. Mm-hmm. So, so no one would notice. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but, that's it's. Uh, we speak but, to but a I lot of. Knew, I always knew where the story was going. I always mm-hmm. knew how it was going to end. Um, so that that was never an issue. There is a myth in uh, in this in the writers' community, and all writers seem to suffer from this mis- misapprehension when they first start out. Is that uh, these novels come fully blown from the minds of the writers, and they they start writing at the beginning and they write through to the end, and that's it. And I, the only writer I've ever heard of that could work that way was Ray Bradbury. And that was it. Who wrote and, a lot more short works than long ones. Yeah, and, and probably for that reason. Yeah. So. Yeah. No, it, every writer has their own methodology. And, and I would recommend, if, particularly if you're just starting out and you want to write fiction, uh, to experiment with different types of methodologies to find what works for you because everyone has a different style of writing, a different mindset, uh, and then you just have to discover what that is and what works for you. I, for for the comics, everything is pretty well mapped out. Actually, it's very well mapped out because we have limited page count. Things Mm -hmm. have to happen in a certain way in order to maintain that 22-page Mm-hmm. Count. And the, uh, certain the, beats have to happen on certain pages, and, and then you have to work out how you're going to get there. Uh, yes. You know, move from yes. one to the next and do it do it on, you know, and hit your marks beat by beat. Uh, correct. You know, absolutely correct. Uh, because otherwise, you know, I, I don't have the money to do, <laughs> to put more pages in the comic. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you do... You do have limitations, but what I have found is I think writing comics has made me a better writer. And it's because it's when you write comics, you have to boil the essence of the story down to its basic essentials because there's no room for anything else. Yeah, I can see and, that. Yeah. And, and it's interesting because I, as you know, your 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 listeners probably may or may not know. I've also written a series of short stories and novellas during the last four years, which are now in in one anthology. And those were kind of a warm up for the novel, which I actually have finished the first Boston Metaphysical Society novel. Ooh. Oh yay! Uh, yeah. It's, and what's the title? Uh, it just has a working title. I'm I'm not really okay. happy with the title yet. <laughs> so uh, let's it's, see. So is you're you're in first draft territory at the moment with it? Oh, it's first draft. I need to rewrite it. It needs to go through beta readers. You know, it's got mm-hmm. a way to go uh, before it needs it's released to the big wide world. 
Yeah. Uh, but it takes, I can tell you this, it takes place five years prior to the comic, and Samuel's wife, Elizabeth Hunter, is still alive. Hmm. Oh, that's going to so, be interesting. That sounds interesting. So we, it, it's essentially a story about Samuel, Elizabeth, and her father, Jonathan Wellsmore. Who you? If you've ever read my novella called uh, Steampunk Rat, mm-hmm. it's mm-hmm. it's actually the the fan favorite. It's about a young Jonathan Wellsmore when he's about fifteen years old, uh, in better in slightly better days. And you've brought up uh, another interesting point. You actually do have quite a following at this point. I mean, you there is when you say fan favorite, you're being serious. You have. Fans who yeah, follow your what work. Is, and what's it like having a, you know, yeah. finding that you have a fandom? I mean, five years ago, you know, thinking back to where your mindset was five years ago and then comparing that to now. It's it's really odd <laughs> because I, I came, as you know, I came from film and in screenwriting, nobody knows who you are. Nobody knows who the writer is. Uh <clears throat> You only when you're a screenwriter, the only fans you have are usually other screenwriters or film students. But the overall, the larger public doesn't have any idea who you are. And it's interesting because, of course, I am the face of Boston Metaphysical, and I meet people regularly and talk to them regularly at, at cons and, and other events. But to to have fans and and people who who quote back stuff from me, stuff from my work is like, <laughs> I, 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 it leaves me kind of speechless. Yeah, I'm, must, I'm honored must have been, and flattered yeah. and, and, and everything. And I just, to me, I just like, well, okay, well, I just have to make the next thing better just to keep everybody happy. <laughs> it must have been quite a jolt the first time somebody did that, quoting a line back to you. Uh, yeah, and there was a young lady when I went to TeslaCon two years ago who, before she met me at the con, said like, oh, I went back and reread The Demons of Liberty Row. And we're like, wow. <laughs> <laughs> I, I was just like, I was floored. I was just floored. Yeah, so now you have people asking you for your autograph and, and uh, asking for autographed copies, you know. Yes. That's, that's. I have people who actually want me to autograph my bookmarks. Uh, wow. I'm like, okay. It's like, what? Well, it's what you've got, you know? Yeah. yeah. A number of uh, authors do, do book plates. So, you know, if someone isn't didn't remember to bring their book with them, this is more prose books than comics generally. But, but you know, a, a trade paperback you could do that with. Yeah, I mean, these aren't even uh, 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 book plates. These are... The little bookmarks that I hand out at con. <laughs> well, you know, it's just, it's easier than well, it's cheaper than buying the the dang book, isn't it? Yep. Yeah, I think that's. I guess that's why. I don't know. Well, and uh, I'm flattered and always stunned. Well, and uh, they people can get your books on Amazon as well. You know, for their Kindle, and you can't autograph a Kindle. Well, you can, but it kind you of destroys the Kindle. Of, well, no, it doesn't destroy it, but you can sign the back. Oh, I suppose. But you run out of space, you see. <laughs> That's yeah, what the bookmarks are for. I can just put them in the binder, right? 
Yeah, I mean, it, it's it's the thing that you can take with you that that you can't do on an ebook. So I I, I guess I can understand why people would ask for that. So uh, fifteen conventions a year, <sighs> and uh, and that's just the conventions. And what about um, uh, outside appearances and uh, radio interviews and podcasts? How- uh, I I don't keep track of those. At least those you can do at home. Yeah, it's what I can do at home. Um, Yeah, I'm actually going to try to cut back on the cons this year as I'm doing more lecturing, crowdfunding lecturing. Mm -hmm. Because as you you know, I have the the book, uh, Kickstarter, for the independent creator. Uh, That's probably a book I'm going to be buying very, very soon, like in the next week. (laughs) <laughs> because we have uh we have our own Patreon campaign that we need to jump start and you are obviously very successful at what you do uh and I could certainly use some uh some th- the wise perspective of someone with your skills. Well, Patreon which is a great platform. Um I love what they're doing, but it is very different than Kickstarter. Uh, you have to bring your fan base with you. You, they, No one will find you there. Mm-hmm. That, that's one of the, the issues I have with Patreon, that unless you already have, even even if it's a small base that will follow you, and that's that's awesome, if you don't have that, you it's it, almost impossible to search. Their search function is not very good. And they don't have the community, say, that Kickstarter does. Mm-hmm. Community, um, I'm sorry, Kickstarter has an amazing community of backers who literally, I have to call them like weekend warrior backers, uh, that get online and the, and the stuff they like, they will go back a whole slew of stuff over the weekend, and you won't see this on any other platform. Hmm. That's fascinating. Uh, so Indiegogo yeah, doesn't have this. Indiegogo does, but not to the extent that Kickstarter does. And Indiegogo has its. That's one of the things I lecture on on my my crowdfunding lectures is is choosing what platform is right for you. Mm-hmm. And uh, they all have their pluses and minuses. I mean, Indiegogo, of course, is great because you can do flexible funding. Mm-hmm. You can pledge to multiple tiers. They have equity crowdfunding. Um, so, yeah, they have a lot of good things going for it. Uh, but Kickstarter is, you know, the one that started it all. And they have a – they are strictly creator-based. So if you're looking for any kind of independent creator anything – you go to Kickstarter, Indiegogo, you can do charities, you can do you can do all sorts of stuff. And uh-huh. um, it's yeah, and then there's Seed, is, Seed and Spark, which is primarily film. Uh-huh. Um, I mean, whenever people want to start crowdfunding, one of the things is, okay, well, first you need to go look at the different platforms because they've all evolved and you need to go and find out about them to see which one is right for you. Because they've all evolved and, to suit a different audience and uh, have different properties and and uh, correct audiences that come with them. That's interesting. Correct. That's interesting. So, uh, 
every uh, everything that you've done so far with Boston Metaphysical has been done on Kickstarter. <clears throat> it, Correct. So that's hmm, very interesting. So once yes, the com- comics do well on uh, comics, I think do better on Kickstarter than any other platform. Well, I think it's the whole the whole idea of having uh, a thing that you can yeah, hold a, in your hand. It's a finite quantity, you know. What we're we're looking yes. for a a a more constant maintenance dose. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, no, that that's understandable. Yeah. Um, but what the book, what, what this is all leading to, what the book might help you do is start gleaning that fan base that you can bring over to Patreon. Yeah. There's a, and, that's a great plan. I well, like and that some plan. finite projects that we would kickstart. Yeah. You know, rather than yeah, some small, support our thing, yeah, like some you know, small little things. Yeah, yeah, but but do a project does, and say does, this is our project. When it's done, we will have this. You can be a part of it. For for those listening, you are sort of getting a, a master class in crowdfunding. You know, on uh, for developing your own uh, comic books or or your own creative projects. Um, we are talking to Madeline Holly Rosing, the creator of Boston Metaphysical which has currently got a Kickstarter running to get all six issues bound together into a trade paperback. Um, they n- well, I, sh- I should add, Gene, that the trade paperback has a 10-page sequential short story that will only be in the trade. Ah, so if you... Brand new So there's an brand enticement. Story. So if you've brand got the, the individual comics... The this original six episodes, you don't have this ten page, correct uh, story. So correct. that's now there's a carrot. Um, <laughs> I I am I am just in awe of the entire process, not only just uh, creatively, but from a business standpoint. You're you're making it all work from uh, the creative all the way back to the uh, back to the final delivery. Once, once all of this is published, I mean, is it, is it, uh, how big a print run are you looking to do? Uh, we're going to do a print run of a thousand. Uh huh. And that, that's obviously going to be enough for, uh, to take care of our Kickstarter backers. Right. And to, uh, so I have enough for cons, mm-hmm. uh, for the year. And if we do well enough at cons, who knows? Maybe we'll be doing another print run towards the end of the year. I don't know, but uh, we we sh- we shall see. Well, and every time uh, Girl Genius wants to do another print run or an extra print run, they go back to Kickstarter. You know, they go back to the well. Yeah, and it and the well oh. fills up their buckets. Oh yeah, they do very well. I, I'm yeah. I- I can't even really compare myself to to Girl Genius. <laughs> They're in a whole different they stratosphere. Listen, anybody who can you know raise a family on on an online comic and its associated you know properties there. But they they really sort of op- they really o- sort of opened the floodgates, didn't they? You know they were they were the uh, I think they did. You know one of the one of the first uh, web comics. Uh, to just release their stuff for free, and then uh, the money came 
uh, afterwards as they sold the hardcovers and the, ch- the, the pins and the brooches and things like that. And you're doing some of that on your Kickstarter as well. One of the stretch, uh, stretch goals is, um, uh, yeah, we have the, a, the air, the airship pin. Uh huh. Yeah. The new lapel pin. And uh, how many more stretch goals are there to unlock? And do you think you're likely to be in trouble if you run out of stretch goals? No, because we'll run out of time. <laughs> we'll just run out of time. Uh, just looking at where we're at, we probably might make one more stretch goal after this, mm-hmm. and then we're just going to run out of time. That's that's so. pretty magnificent. I mean, the, that you're that you're, um, it's going so well that you're blowing past these stretch goals and well, doing it so fast. Well, I have to go back to my, scree back to my computer after this and, and blow her past the next one. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's my goal tonight. <laughs> oh, oh, that's funny. Our, our, um, our elect- no, that, that would be awesome because both my husband is has become a, a semi, you know, professional in Kickstarter as well because, of course, he watches me do this and we talk about it quite mm-hmm. a bit. In fact, it was his idea to add the ten pager to the trade to in, entice people who already had the six issues to buy the trade. And, yeah, something uh, that they couldn't get or didn't have. That's yeah, that's, great that's idea, right. great idea. And, and and even better than that, I was able to do. It, it's a story that I originally was going to do as a novella, but it didn't fit anywhere into what I was doing. Mm -hmm. So he just said, do it as the the 10 pager. You know, we can probably afford to put in, you know, pay Emmy and everybody to do the 10 pager. And I said, yeah, let me figure out the budget for that. Uh, Because people forget that this all costs money. Oh, right. Yes. (laughs) And and I am the writer, creator, and the producer, and the director and everything. But I'm not the artist or the colorist or the letterer or the pre-press or any of that. So all, all of that is yeah. farmed out. Oh, yeah. And all of those people have to be paid, you know. I mean, they would. That's right. The, the thing that people don't realize is that, uh, uh, you know, it might be fun to do it, but you still have to be able to afford to take the time to do it so that you don't, you know, so that you have enough to eat and your lights don't go out. And things like that, and everybody who works on these projects has to be paid. It's not. It, it's not a matter of greed. It's a matter of necessity. Uh, oh, absolutely. The, the creative people have to be able to survive the experience of having worked on your stuff, and and uh, that's an important thing to remember when you are uh, looking at Kickstarters and, and creative ventures like Boston Metaphysical, that uh, all of this stuff just it requires your support. All of the people who work on a creative project deserve your support, and it's not just the one person. No, I mean every every little thing because I'm I am a Photoshop challenged in probably every single way. Ooh, yeah. So I, I I farm out everything and and I obviously have a number of friends who are artists and so I as I call it I spread the love and I hire you know different people to do my bookmarks and do this and do that and so you know I get work done and people get paid. <laughs> and I have something, you know, I have marketing material, I have stuff for Kickstarter, uh, all of this. 
So do you have uh, a, a yeah. favorite experience from uh, from a convention uh, from from the past year? Well, I, the story I just told you was it about being <laughs> the uh, the law student. Uh, that was uh-huh. it. Ah, uh, yeah. That was it. So it's uh, I mean, that, that that gave me chills. And what's even fun is I tell that story to uh, some of the people who were in my sequential art class when I was de- redeveloping the TV pilot into a, a graphic novel series. And, you know, they would get chills because, of course, they knew, you know, they had walked through this process with me. So they knew Granville. They knew all these characters. And it was like, oh, my God, you know, this real guy has has affected us all in a way that we never even imagined. So it's, it's pretty awesome. That's it's amazing like how amazing how interconnected it all is. You know, I mean, you, you yeah, uh, these are towering figures in, in history. And then Granville, uh, a name that few have ever heard of, turns out to have played such a pivotal role. It's just... Well, you, we, everybody affects everybody, is, is I guess the, the take-home on that one. Yeah, I think you're right. You're, you're absolutely right, Susan. So are we ever going to see it turn back into a screenplay? Are we going to see it... Uh, you know, Outlander can't last forever. Uh <laughs> <laughs> Um, possibly yes. I I have been approached in the past by some production companies. I have yet to find the right fit. And you know, my husband and I we put so much time, energy, and money into this project that I would rather rather wait for the right partner mm-hmm. to make sure it gets done right okay. <laughs> and well, All right. uh, rather than to rush into anything. We have been speaking with Madeline Holly Rosing, uh, and the creator of um, Boston, Boston Metaphysical Boston. Society, a webcomic. You can read it for free, and you can go to the Kickstarter campaign and look it up. And there is a uh, there's a trade being put together with all six issues plus a ten page special story that you can only get if you sign up for that Kickstarter. Thank you so much for joining us and rescuing us from our showless weekend. (laughs) Well, now that we've been to Boston, we got to go back to Boston and, like, retrace the steps. Oh, yeah, we were just in Boston. We went to Aresia about three weeks ago, four weeks ago now. Oh, uh, fun. Yeah, so we were actually in Boston. and uh, But now we need to do the metaphysical tour. Is there Absolutely. one? Absolutely. I don't if we can make one. Okay. <laughs> I bet there's one. I bet there's one. You have been listening to episode 161 of Krypton Radio's weekly production of The Event Horizon for February 18th, 2017. Our guest this evening has been Madeline Holly Rosing, writer and creator of Boston Metaphysical Society, the steampunk supernatural webcomic series now on Kickstarter so that its first six issues can go to press as a trade paperback. Your hosts have been Susan Fox and Gene Turnbow. This episode will air again tomorrow at 4 p.m. Pacific, 7 p.m. Eastern, and two more times on the following Thursday and Saturday mornings at 4 a.m. Pacific, 7 a.m. Eastern. Yes, we will be changing these airtimes so that you can catch the show at a more reasonable hour. Uh, We thought we were going to be announcing that last week, hope to be announcing it this week. 
uh, as to exactly what times those will be. Once all the air times for this show have passed, you will find this episode and others on iTunes, Stitcher, and on our own website at kryptonradio.com as podcasts. Krypton Radio is nerd-supported geek culture radio, and while we do get some of our money from advertising, the vast preponderance of it comes from listeners just like you. If you enjoy hearing the Event Horizon each week, please visit patreon.com slash kryptonradio and agree to contribute $5 a month. It will help keep your favorite radio station and shows like this one on the air and thriving. If you are an artist, writer, actor, or other creator and you would like to appear as a guest on the Event Horizon, please contact our production manager, Kat Carter, at katcarter at kryptonradio.com. The Event Horizon title sequence was written and produced by Gene Turnbow. The science officer was played by science fiction illustrator Mark Schirmeister. The engineer was Christian B. McGuire. The navigator was Christine Cherry. And the captain was voiced by legendary science fiction grandmaster Larry Nevin. This program is copyright 2017 by Krypton Media Group Incorporated. The Event Horizon on Krypton Radio. It's sci-fi for your Wi-Fi. 